I just thought I would take uh, just a moment before we reflect on Psalm 23 to um, just consider this prayer for a moment. As many of you know, uh, there is a tenor in our country right now of deep fear, uh, one where I would have to say many of us uh, have felt the pain of hurt, the need for reconciliation, the issue of, as all described in this prayer, of enemies. Um, many of you know that we've been through a season that uh, fear was kind of front and center. Uh, and that fear, in many ways, created a disorientation for us as people. Uh, whether that's because we feel at some level threatened, or that's because certain people are in power and others aren't. Uh, all of that has created a disorienting feeling, and in many ways has created a bit of a rift in our country. And I don't mean it from a political standpoint. As you know, we rarely, if ever, talk about politics here. I mean it more from the level that uh, there is a deep fracturing in our country. A sense of, um, instead of focusing on that which brings people together, there's a tendency right now in our country to focus on that which makes one different from another. So we focus on things that uh, leave us separate there's a focus on the marginalized. There is a fear, a woundedness. And many are feeling and experiencing the effects of that power. And while it doesn't affect some of us as much as it does others, there has to be, I think, in our mind that many in our culture at the margins are deeply affected by things that have happened across this country. I think it wouldn't take long for many of us to be able to recall example after example of ways in which people have been spoken out against, where hate has been promoted, where people have been encouraged, encouraged in some form of another to, um, to demonstrate feelings uh, of re really of evil. There have been the promotion of sexism and racism and homophobia, and all of that is creating a distance and a hurt uh, in our culture. I'm sure some of you have even seen downtown at Martin Luther King Jr. building uh, some of the graffiti uh, that promoted hate. Some of you have heard stories of racism and hate speech. There have been examples that we can point to in town, friends of ours that have experienced their little kid being told to either go back to their own country or that they're going to be hurt because of other people. There have been tra transracial families that we know that have experienced their houses either being egged, letters posted on their door, uh, describing how just hateful um, others are being toward them. And uh, broad statements in leadership even across our country that have been quite damaging. And uh, this week... Um, I've met with many people in this community, uh, ethnic minorities who I have sat with and cried with, who have felt um, deep pain, fear, discouragement. Uh, there have been um, many people this week that uh, either identify as queer or are part of the LGBT community that are part of our community here that have felt, again, marginalized hated and discouraged. 
even spoke with members of global con- neighborhood in that community who have talked about the fear that they feel as being either from a Middle Eastern country or being members uh, at some form or another of the Muslim faith and the language that is being communicated toward those groups of people again is quite alarming and I think it's important for us to acknowledge several things one there are many people among us that are hurting and maybe you're not feeling that hurt maybe you're not experiencing that for whatever reason Uh, but it would be naive of us to think that there are people who are not experiencing pain. And I think there comes with that a responsibility. If we are people of the way, if we are followers of Jesus, it comes at several levels. One level would be for us to stand with those who are being wounded, to come alongside of, to care for, to be with, to acknowledge pain, to, to express sorrow, to weep with those who weep. I mean, that's a responsibility, I think, of anyone who follows Jesus. But I want to go a little step further, and I think um, a Bonhoeffer quote uh, speaks to this a little bit more uh, than I personally could. He said this quite a few years ago, we are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. There is a responsibility on our part to not just care for those who are hurting, but actually to speak out against those who are offending. Not just to be with those who are being marginalized, but to actually fight for justice rather than just put up with injustice. So my encouragement to us as we enter into this little reflection on Psalm 23, is to, to not only think about the ways in which the psalm describes God's movement in our life in the midst of evil. Right? He speaks to this idea of, regardless of what you're going through, even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil, right? But there's something about God's presence with us. That he describes it as a, a staff, as a comfort, as him being with us. But there's also this really cool phrase that says that he will prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And really it's the idea that he will lavish blessing on those who are feeling hurt. He will lavish a a generosity and a hospitality on those who are in the midst of enemies. But I don't think it's just his responsibility. I think the reason he has invited us to be a part of his community why he's invited us to be a part of his family is to take on that same responsibility and to be not just with, but to be for. And to not be for is to actually be with the oppressor rather than the oppressed. And so I want to read Psalm 23 this morning. I just want us to quietly listen to the words. And then uh, we're just going to put a couple reflection questions up on the screen and we're going to ask you to take a minute or two and to think on Psalm 23 and the ways in which God moves among us. The words of Psalm 23 will be on the screen. Just follow quietly as I read these words. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. He makes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside the still waters. He restores our soul. 
He leads us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I and we will fear no evil, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our head with oil. Our cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Take a moment. There's going to be three reflection questions on the screen. Just take a moment in quiet to reflect through these, and then I'll come up in a moment and we'll transition to something else. All right, good morning again, everybody. Uh, So sometimes when uh, we put together an order of service, we kind of forget how long people are going to be sitting and listening to just people talking, and this is one of those mornings, uh, because now you're going to listen to me talk for a little while. So I hope you guys can uh, stay engaged. Um, uh, Two quick things. Uh, One, uh, after these um, clipboards go around, our offering buckets will come around, and everybody knows what to do there. And then secondly... We go to one service next week as a friendly reminder. So for the entire Advent season, starting next Sunday, we're at one 10 a.m. service. Those of you who still show up at 9, you will be helping set up chairs and making coffee. And we really appreciate that help. So, um, so I'm going uh, to begin by telling a little story this morning. Uh, this summer I had um, kind of this strange and unique opportunity uh, to go on a rafting trip. I was invited to go on a rafting trip with um, a, a, a um, again, kind of a, a unique group of people from around the western United States. And we were going to go and raft uh, a portion of the Colorado River. And so uh, we met in, um, actually in Aspen, and we kind of got orientated there, and then we had to get on this, um, this like, kind of old rickety bus and then drive to get into uh, where the put-in was for the rafting trip. And we spent, uh, this bus ride was, I don't know, probably two or three hours. Uh, It was incredibly hot and uh, not super comfortable. And we had one stop, we're going to make one stop before we actually got to the river. And uh, and it was a stop at a safe way to get like last things, go to the bathroom, do whatever we needed to do. The entire bus ride, we did not have cell reception, which, you know, for uh, us in this current context is very challenging not to have cell reception for any matter of time. So people, once they got off the bus, everybody was kind of checking their uh, emails and making phone calls and sending their last texts and and whatever. And uh, I had to use the restroom. Uh, I also had to send one quick email before I was uh, off the grid for the next couple of days. So I uh, get my phone. I turn it back on. uh, I'm kind of sending this email as I'm walking into the bathroom. Finish the email, put the phone in my pocket, and, uh, and walk into the stall. And I noticed uh, a few things, or walked in the bathroom, and I noticed a few things right away when I walked into the bathroom. The first was that the smell in this bathroom was actually incredibly pleasant. Uh, maybe more so than any other restroom I had ever been in. I went in, and there was this, like, wafting of eucalyptus. And it was like, wow, this is, uh, you know, for a Safeway bathroom, like, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with this right now. And, and then I kind of looked around, and I noticed there was this, like, uh, potted plant in the corner of the restroom. I didn't know whether it was alive or whether it was fake. But what I did know is that it really brought the room together, and it was very nice. 
I had never seen a plant in a restroom before. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Like in like a really nice restroom at like the Davenport. There's probably plants there. But in, in a safe way, I'd never seen this before. Uh, and again, it was like the whole experience was really coming together for me. And I walked into the stall. Uh, I noticed there wasn't a urinal, so I, I was just like, oh, that's no problem. I, I walked in the stall, and there was this little garbage can right in the corner of the stall. Again, something I had never seen before. And I, my first thought was, man, that is incredibly convenient. How come bathrooms have never had a garbage can like in the individual stall? That makes a ton of sense. Blow your nose, you can just throw it right in the garbage can. It's great. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, getting oriented is, is what, how I'll say it. <clears throat> I look to the left and... Uh, and don't act like you don't do this. You look at the people's feet on the other side of you or either side of you. I looked to the left, and uh, there was a pair of pink aqua socks to the left. And my first thought was, wow, aqua socks. Like, who still has aqua socks at this point? <laughs> I, was, I was slightly amazed. And then the next thought that I had was, I am certainly in the women's restroom right now. <laughs> I had finally put all the pieces together and realized that I was now in a women's restroom. And so there was this moment of terror, kind of like, oh man, am I going to be the creepy guy in a women's restroom right now? And uh, I, I, there were not a lot of choices. So my thought was, okay, I, I sit here, I'm quiet, I wait until this lady finishes and leaves, and then I try to make an exit, and maybe nobody sees me. And then there's no harm, right? And so I'm looking through the, 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 the like little slat through the door, like kind of seeing what's going on. Uh, the toilet flushes. She gets out, washes her hands uh, because she's into hygiene. It was great. She uh, she leaves. I can hear the door shut, and I'm like, okay, now is my time. Nobody else is in the bathroom. I listen for a minute. I was like, did anybody else come in? Nobody else is in there. So I quickly open the door. Nobody's in there. I'm just th I'm thinking, please. No woman walk in right now. Just give me 15 seconds to get out of this place. I open the door. Nobody's coming in. I think I'm, uh, I'm home free. I turn around, and right in front of me is a group of five women. <laughs> they have all kind of huddled down the hallway, and I'm hearing them whispering things like, I think there is a man in the women's restroom. <laughs> So I turn around, I look, they're right there, you know, about 10 feet in front of me. They all kind of look at me. The woman with the pink aqua socks is right there, like leaned in. I totally freeze. And all I say is, I was the man in the women's restroom. <laughs> and then I immediately walk into the men's restroom. And I just think, maybe I'll just skip the trip. <laughs> at this point, there's no way I can get back on that bus with these people. So I just say, okay, I'm just going to hang out in the men's restroom until all these people are gone. And uh, I, I got back on the bus, and of course, everybody uh, thought that this was hilarious. Uh, and I had to apologize profusely for uh, my blunder. My entrance into the women's restroom was certainly not out of malicious intent. It wasn't me giving in to some sort of weird temptation. It was simply a moment where I just lost focus, honestly. My eyes were on my phone, and I didn't actually look at the bathroom door. Didn't even think about it. I was focused in on what I was doing, didn't pay attention to my, uh, my surroundings, didn't look at uh, the signs, and just went in to the wrong restroom. Ultimately, not a ton of damage was done. I think that lady was a little bit embarrassed. I apologized to her. I was probably more so embarrassed. 
Uh, but what this reminds me of is looking towards the wrong things can cause serious damage in the pursuit and the practice of our Christian faith. So today, we, uh, we bring to a close the Seven Deadly Sins series. And our last topic uh, is the one that most theologians, most Christian historians would say is the root or the foundation of the previous six that we've looked at. Today we'll be talking about pride. So before I fully jump in, I do want to clear up one point of confusion. The original list of the seven deadly sins actually does not include pride. All right? Pride was seen as the root of all seven, like the foundation from which the seven deadly sins are built upon. So the sin that stood in its place in the list was something called vainglory, not a word that we use very often now. Think about it as vanity. That was the sin that took the place of pride in that list. Now, vanity and pride are actually uh, very, very closely linked. Some consider vanity as the cousin of pride. It's different, but certainly related. Vainglory, I'll I'll give you a couple of definitions here, and and maybe this helps us figure this out, but vainglory is defined as an an inordinate pride in oneself or one's achievement, where pride is defined as having an excessively high opinion of oneself or one's importance. Now, those things sound very, very similar, right? So here's a different way to look at it. Vainglory strives not for something that is excellent, but for anything that brings public applause. While pride is convinced of one's deserving of public applause. Okay, one more that maybe helps us, and this is is the one that that spoke to me. Vainglory seeks to become superior, while pride believes superiority is already achieved. Alright? In many ways, vainglory is like being pregnant with pride. If given time and if fed, it will become pride in your life. Throughout the morning, uh, throughout the rest of this talk, I'll be touching on elements of both of these things, but primarily I'm going to use the word pride because uh, it's a better catch-all, it's a better term, and I think it's something that uh, we may understand or grasp a little bit better. And in reality, what I'm trying to do this morning is not only talk about pride, but really bring some closure to this entire series, to the entire series of the seven deadly sins. Let me pray, and uh, and then we will jump in this morning. God, be with us today. Lord, um, as Russ spoke in one of those first talks, we pray for uh, the ability to have radical self-disclosure, to be aware of ourselves, to be aware of the pride that is in all of our lives. Let us wrestle with that this morning. Help us to be convicted, God, and then help us to take steps necessary uh, to look at you to fix our gaze on who you are, not on ourselves. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There was a a powerful idea mentioned last week. How many people were here for the panel last week? Okay, so many of us were here. So we had a panel that discussed uh, envy, and there was this powerful thing that was mentioned. Amy, one of our panelists, she's a mother of three, mentioned the idea that she gets into trouble when she starts looking at the people the things, the situations around her. She gets into trouble when she loses focus on what God has put in front of her, her family, all of the the beautiful things that she has in her life. 
This, I contend, is how I found myself in a women's restroom. I was looking at the wrong thing, right? I was looking at my phone. I wasn't looking at the sign on the door. And as I thought about that statement that Amy made last week, it became very clear to me that one of the underlying issues with pride is similar. Here's the issue is, what are you looking at? What is it that you are looking at in your life? The deadly sins are not propositional in nature, meaning it's not a matter of if you envy or are you gluttonous. It's how are you envious and where are you gluttonous? The seven deadly sins are not things that we should be aware of and therefore steer clear of them. They are the realities in our lives. The only question is to what extent do they affect us? The same is absolutely true with pride, right? It's not a matter of if as much as how and when. Pride, more than the other sins, does pose a particular challenge, however, because it can mutate as soon as we recognize it in our lives. I find this to be especially true when I'm at the grocery store. I went to Costco yesterday. Nobody told me that Costco on the Saturday before Thanksgiving is an absolute zoo. How many, did anybody go to Costco yesterday? You feel my pain, right? It was terrible. I showed up at four, and uh, I, I don't go to the store uh, for the social aspects of the store. I don't go to the store to, like, wander around and look at things. I go to the store with, a, with an idea of exactly what I need and a goal to be as efficient as possible of getting through the aisles and, and getting uh, my business done. What I noticed about Costco... Uh, and I don't go to Costco a lot, but what I noticed about it yesterday is that uh, it, is, it is very much a place where people are socializing and just wandering around. I, I kept thinking, what is everybody doing right now? Why is everybody walking so slowly in this store? People are like looking at things and talking, and it's, it's like this fun event for people. And it, I, I just, I was blown away yesterday. My, I had my three boys, and, it's, uh, and we're just trying to get through, and people are ambling around, and it, um, it was a very strange thing. Inevitably, uh, you know, I always tend to find myself at the store when I'm on a, on a tight schedule and I have things to do. And this usually happens, and this certainly happened yesterday. Uh, you get behind the wrong person in the checkout line, right? And maybe it's not just the wrong person. It could be the wrong checker, too, the person that just wants to chat and, like, get to know somebody. I have no time for that. But sometimes it's actually the person uh, buying the food. Uh, usually for me, it's a middle-aged woman. I apologize if any of you are in here. Uh, she looks like she's stocking up for the apocalypse. It's like the most food you've ever seen. And then like 15 cases of bottled water that's on the big pallet that they're pushing around. She gets almost all the way through and then realizes that she forgot something. And usually it's paper plates because those are like the farthest thing away. And then they're like making a call on the, the intercom to send some young guy to sprint down there and get paper plates. And we're, I'm just standing there thinking, I am so glad I'm not this person. R really, this is where pride shows up. I'm so glad I'm better than this person is usually how, uh, how my thought process goes. It's an incredibly arrogant moment for me where I'm just like frustrated at people and their uh, inefficiency and how they're not doing it the way that I think it should be done. And then at that moment, I think, oh, man, I am so prideful. 
they're just being good stewards of their money. They're just trying to get stuff for their family. They're, they're just being who they are. Lord, I confess my sinful thoughts to you. And then as I'm walking to my car later, this thought comes into my mind. Man, I sure have come a long way in my spirituality. <laughs> my humble spirit of confession is remarkable. <laughs> so that's what I mean when I say that pride poses a particular threat and that it can mutate very, very quickly in our lives. Just when we recognize it, it shifts. And you become once again vulnerable for it seeping in to who you are. Pride is not just the root of the deadly sins. I think you can make a case that pride is the very foundation of all sin. Augustine said this, Pride made the soul desert God, to whom it should cling as the source of life, and to imagine itself instead as the source of its own life. Pride, more than just thinking oneself is superior to others, is actually trying to replace God with ourselves. It is the vice that seeks to suffocate God out of our life and to take over the throne. Pride is what brings the fall in Genesis 3. Pride is what built the Tower of Babel. Pride is what leads Israel to worship idols. Pride drives the Pharisees' self-righteousness. Pride is what keeps the older brother from celebrating with the prodigal son. And pride is what casts Satan down from heaven. In each of these stories and the countless other stories where pride brings destruction, the characters had lost sight of God and become focused only on themselves. Their eyes had drifted from their maker and their sight fixated on their own superiority. They tried to become God. I was reminded of one of Jesus' healings this week. Mark 8 22 through 25, if you want to turn there, it'll be up behind us as well. It says this, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. This has always been an interesting passage to me. Coming off the heels of feeding the 4,000 and a rebuke of the Pharisees, uh, for they demanded a sign that would prove that Jesus was God, Jesus gets into a boat and then warns his disciples of the spiritual blindness and the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. And in making that point to them on the boat, he says, Having eyes, do you not see? The next thing we read is Jesus healing this blind man. And what's interesting about the healing process, I'm sure you picked it up, is the man isn't fully healed right away, right? His eyesight is restored partially. He sees people, but they are unclear. He says they're like trees walking around. And so in a very real way, he has eyes, but he still does not see, as Jesus just warned his disciples about. And so Jesus lays hands on him again, and the man's sight is fully restored, and the scripture says he sees clearly. So a couple of things could be happening in this passage. Maybe Jesus was tired. Maybe he was worn out. Maybe he was distracted, and the first attempt just didn't take. 
we don't really like that <laughs> explanation. So maybe he uses it simply to illustrate the point he had made earlier about having eyes but not being able to see. Giving the disciples a tangible way to experience what he was teaching. Certainly this was a part of it. Maybe, and I believe this might be how it speaks to us this morning, sometimes there is a need for the second healing touch of Jesus. You see, right now I'm I'm guessing most of us in this room believe in Jesus. Most of us have probably at some point in our lives trusted him as Lord, saying, I give you my life. We have been saved. We have experienced his healing touch. And yet, pride and the rest of the seven deadly sins are ravaging our lives. We are like the men in Bethsaida. We have vision, but what we are seeing is not the reality of the life that we have been called to. People and things around us look blurry. Our vision is distorted because we have too often only looked at ourselves. Like the time I found myself in the women's restroom, we have lost our focus. Our eyes have drifted, and we've lost the spiritual sight that we so desperately need. C.S. Lewis says this about pride. He says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The seven deadly sins are constantly pulling our eyes away from looking up. We look for things to make us feel good. We look to find more of what we already have. We longingly look at others' lives. We look at the ways that we have been wronged. We look for ways to be distracted. We look only at ourselves, seeking to become our own God. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Like the man at Bethsaida, we are in deep need of the second healing touch of God. We are in deep need of restored and healed vision. His healing will come in the form of snuffing out our pride and establishing true humility in our spirit. The second healing I believe many of us need cannot be accomplished on our own. This is not something that we can go out and will ourselves or discipline ourselves to achieve. It is purely an act of grace. It is an act of mercy from our Creator. All we can do is look to Jesus and pray for a posture of humility. Dallas Willard says this. He says, A vision of God secures humility. Seeing God for who He is enables us to see ourselves for what we are. This makes us bold, for we see clearly what great good and evil are at issue, and we see that it is not up to us to accomplish it, but up to God, who is more than able. We are delivered 
from pretending, from being presumptuous about ourselves, and from pushing as if the outcome depends on us. We persist without frustration, and we practice calm and joyful noncompliance with evil of every kind. Looking to God is key if we are to be a humble people, and being a humble people is key if we desire not to be destroyed by our own pride. Lewis said many things about pride and humility famously, and I'm adding a little bit of emphasis, a little tweak onto this. He said this, humility is not seeing yourself as less, it's looking less at yourself. Only when we begin to really look towards Christ will we experience freedom from pride. Freedom from the sins we've talked about over the last seven weeks. I started this series seven weeks ago with an invitation. We read Matthew 7, 13 and 14. The invitation was this. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, or those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The seven deadly sins are the invitations we receive every day. Invitations that, if accepted, will lead us through the wide gate and will lead us to destruction. Many of us are already there. The other invitation is the still, soft voice of Christ that calls us toward a life of honor and worship. A voice we can only hear if we are humble and have an open posture. A voice we can only hear if we are looking towards the person that is speaking it to us. I can remember sitting in driver's ed class in 1998 when my instructor said something so simple and yet so profound, it has stuck with me. In talking about staying focused on the road ahead, on the task of driving, Mike said this, you will drive toward the thing you were looking at. In that moment, I didn't know how profound that would be. But he said, if you were driving and there's an accident over here and you focus in on the accident, you'll likely drive into the accident. I'm not sure what it says about me that the greatest piece of advice has come from my driver's ed instructor. But the truth remains, where our eyes are fixed is not only where we will go, but it is what we will love. That truth is simple and yet profound. I want to end with an encouragement. Paul recognized the incredible importance of keeping our eyes locked in on Christ, but he didn't seem to be defeated in the midst of the sin that he also was very aware of in his life. Throughout his life, he acknowledges his own weakness, but then trusts deeply in the grace and strength of Christ. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are eternal. New community. Do not lose heart. 
but understand that the world around you is competing for your attention. It is giving you an invitation every day. So let us be a people that self-disclose our failings with radical vulnerability. Let us be a people who genuinely seek to be better with our disciplined efforts. And let us recognize the constant need to shift our eyes from ourselves to the Lord. And let us seek the second healing touch of Jesus. Would you pray with me?